Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. Vegas! Vegas, baby, Vegas! You're either in or you're out. Right now. My best mates are going to Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Las Vegas, here we go! Pack your bags and get ready for a different kind of Vegas experience with someone who knows Vegas inside and out. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Louis the Coin. You've heard a lot about him on this show. We've talked to Andy Tebow, who's one of our guests today, a lot of times about the great Louis the Coin. He's a criminal that you just want to love, okay? There's a lot more to him. He was in the underworld working there. He wasn't, wasn't a guy out killing people, but he was a guy out probably the greatest counterfeiter of all time, and they got a new book on it. Andy has got a new book. It's called You Thought It Was More? Adventures of the World's Greatest Counterfeiter, Louis the Coin. And you want to get a hold of this book. It's amazing. We'll tell you how to get that real soon. He's joined today with us with Joe Broadmeadow. He was a retired cop, ranked captain from the East Providence, Rhode Island Police Department after 20 years. He's a great author. He's written some uh, three fiction and three nonfiction books. I suggest you check them out on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and uh, you'll look at the reviews. You'll love it. Joe, wanted to talk with you because you know the, the scene in Rhode Island and uh, the, the whole history of the mob there. And from what you said, there's two things people have to understand, and one of them is the mobs there were particularly ruthless and so forth. It was one of those things where you, you, you couldn't take them for granted, right? These guys played hardball. Sure. Well, that, that, you know, the, the, the one interesting thing in, a, in Rhode Island, there were two names that everybody knew. Um, one was Buddy, and that was Buddy Cienci, who was the mayor of Providence, and he, was, he had an international so to speak, reputation. Uh, ultimately, went to prison for five years under a RICO indictment conviction. Um, but then there was Raymond, and Raymond was Raymond L. S. Patriaca, who was the who was the head of organized crime, and he ran uh, the Rhode Island mob from the early 1950s when he first took over uh, through 1984 when he died. And uh, Raymond had a great career even before he became the head of the mob. He had he had taken a Conviction for five-year, con- well, conviction for a robbery, and he was sentenced to five years. He served three months, and um, an assistant to the governor in Massachusetts sent a letter, um, purportedly from a priest, uh, saying that you know Raymond had found the error of his ways and was a good boy and should just be released from prison, and and actually uh, managed to get him out. And it turned out the letter was false. Uh, the assistant to the governor was ultimately fired, but Raymond never went back to prison for it. Amazing. And uh, that, yeah, and and actually, uh, I could tell the story later on, but there was another uh, case uh, involving Patriarca where a priest, and this time an actual priest, um, played a very integral role in trying to provide an alibi for Patriarca on a murder conviction, that he, or a conspiracy to murder conviction that he was that he was charged in and subsequently convicted on. So the organized crime in Rhode Island had a stranglehold on, on the state. And um, it was rumored that Patrick Parker had actually managed to get, uh, he managed to control the governor and get a certain um, uh, superintendent 
from the state police named Walter Stone, who was legendary in Rhode Island as a former province police chief, and then ultimately as the head of the Rhode Island State Police in the longest tenure as a as a superintendent of a state police agency in the country, um, managed to get him um, uh, out of his job for a period of time. And it actually was a fact, a gubernatorial election in Rhode Island when John Chafee ultimately became a senator, but he was running for governor. And one of the platforms he ran on is that he would put he would put Walter Stone back in as the head of uh, the Rhode Island State Police, and uh, and he did so. You know, Raymond, uh, organized crime had uh, a, an, an unusual amount of influence in the state. You know, it's a small state. Yeah. Everybody knows everybody else. And, uh, you know, people will tell you, even to this day, that federal was sort of the, the primarily Italian neighborhood at the time in the 50s and 60s and up until the prior to 80s. It's changed a bit now, but they will tell you that, you know, it was safer to live there because Patrick Aka had his office there and and uh, nothing happened on uh, on the street that Patrick Patriarca didn't know about and controlled. Well, it sounds like also he was working with the church and so forth. And you know, you mentioned <laughs> Buddy, and I I interviewed Buddy for, seems like a million years ago. And yeah, Rhode yeah. Island is really a different type of state. <laughs> it really is it not is. like Massachusetts or some of those surrounding states. No, no. In in, in Rhode Island, I mean. You know, most people who live in states, you know, bigger states, New York, uh, live in Arizona now. You know, you, you don't have day-to-day contact with the governor, or, you know, chiefs of the, you know, heads of the, you know, the Supreme Court. And But, you know, growing up in Rhode Island, I, mean, I personally knew, and I'm not involved in the politics, but I, I personally knew, you know, four governors. I, I knew, you know, the presiding justice of the Supreme Court, you know, I'm uh, all of them, a couple of presiding justices of the Superior Court, just a small state. So, you know, there's a lot of sort of personal contact, you know, one degree of separation here. Organized crime had a reputation of, you know, they pretty much ran everything. Well, like you just said before, up at Federal Hill, people liked them. I mean, there was a certain, uh, almost, I guess, not only respect, but kind of admiration for the mob, which you don't see everywhere. And I guess that goes to what you're saying there. When you have that kind of control, people feel, hey, it's safe. Exactly. They, they, there are people who actually, they, they would call it honor. They said that these guys were honorable men. I mean, these guys would, you know, they would kill your grandmother if she, if, <laughs> yeah. you know, if she had a, if she owed a thousand dollars. But but they had this sort of reputation that there was that there was honor among them and you know and there was and it was clearly not I mean these guys would you know all about the money and if you were a money maker Louis was a money maker for them um, and Louis as long as Louis was making money for them he was you know he was a protected guy if Louis ever crossed the line you know, and and wasn't making money for them anymore. I was putting them in a bad spot. You know, we'd have been finding him in a shallow grave someplace up in Rehoboth, Massachusetts, where we found four or five other people. So, um, you know, there, there was no honor there. Um, matter of fact, one of the books that I wrote was about a guy named Jerry Tillinghast. Every every st- every every link that you will find will always say Jerry Tillinghast, notorious mob enforcer. <laughs> but he tells a funny story about going up to New York and meeting with John Gotti and. and uh, it was Jerry and um, uh, Gerard Wimet, who was another one. Of, he was a head of one of Patriarca's uh, um, groups, and uh, and uh, also not Italian. He was he was French and Irish. And they're talking with one of the Gotti's men. Says to Tillinghast, "Where are you guys from?" 
And and Jerry says, we're from Providence. He says, oh, man, you're crazy. You kill everybody. <laughs> I said, this, is a, this is a New York mobster talking to the Providence guy saying, you guys are crazy. You kill everybody. So that tells you the kind of reputation they had. Andy, tell us. So we're hearing about that. Louis the Coin. Uh, he didn't do any of the the killing and so forth, as uh, you know uh, Joe was saying, and yet this guy was loved and was really good at what he did. Tell us who Louis the Coin is. Yeah, well, Louis uh, wasn't a saint. Uh, he, he was involved in a few beatdowns, but he was not your average hoodlum in any way. He was a a, a business administration graduate of Providence College and he was a genius in metallurgy. He he was uh like an artist. He made everything from orthotics and jewelry to silencers and uh devices where you can make free phone calls to uh hundred dollar slot machine tokens that could not be detected. And Louis got away with a lot from what I could tell. Uh, For example, he had a cousin, Cosmo, who was selling cigarettes at the the prison, the ACI. That's the name of it, right, Joe? Yeah. And and, uh, that that was Raymond's turf. But Raymond uh, spared a lot of people who were stupid, I don't know why, but made big mistakes. And then Cosmo, so Louis got Raymond, to show you how close Louis was, he got Raymond to, like, like Cosmo still keep this deal, pretty lucrative cigarettes in jail. But then Cosmo gets busted for selling contraband cigarettes without the tax stamps. And uh, Raymond spared him, and, and he spared another guy who screwed up a major uh, real estate deal in, in Las Vegas, and Louis writes in detail about that one. You guys have to explain to me, then Raymond, who was kind of a vicious guy, but I guess he had a soft spark for for some of these folks. I mean, that's kind of interesting. Well, he did for Louis, but Louis brought in millions. Plus, he, yeah. you know, Raymond had hitmen who a series of them had Killed, killed each other because, you know, one or two broke uh, mob laws where you can't uh, be intimate with a a fellow guy's wife or girlfriend. And, you know, they were just doing, those hitmen got really mm-hmm. stupid and they got taken out one after another. Uh, but, you know, Louis tells a few stories of people who were spared who were just like stupid but not malicious. Yeah. What sounds to me like one thing about Louis is he wasn't stupid. This was a really brilliant guy in a lot of ways. Because the guys you're talking about and Joe was talking about, uh, they weren't geniuses. They just uh, they got their way through uh, an aggressive, uh, violent approach. Yeah. Sure. Well, I, you know, Louis was talent. He brought in millions. He imported a printing press from Italy. I think it was a 150-ton press, and he re-engineered slot machine tokens from 
Foxwoods, Mohegan Sun, Atlantic City, and Las Vegas. Like, there's all kinds of metals and colors and different percentages of things. And, he, you know, he ordered all the raw materials. And he had two own dye makers. When they seized all his equipment, they had to, the feds had to uh, rent two big storage facilities. Wow. To, to kind of... To, to kind of put a, a, a you know a, a quick perspective on just how far Patriarch's control extended, Rhode Island back then the prison was divided into what they called North State, South State, and then um, I don't recall the second and the third area off the top of my head. But North State was the area of the prison where all the mob guys were, and was where Patriarch was when he was um, the last few years of the sentence that he did. Um, but there's a very famous picture um, of taken inside the prison, and there is uh, there are uh, four rather, rather notorious mob guys that are in the picture, including Gerard Wimet, a guy named um, George Basmajan, who was a really, really uh, tough guy and a bad guy, uh, a killer, and, um, and ultimately uh, his murder was what Jerry Tillinghast went to prison for. But the image is if this dinner... It, now, this, this is inside the prison. This is inside the prison walls, and they have full silverware. There's <laughs> there's bottles of scotch. There's wine bottles on the table. There are prisoners serving as the waiters, providing, you know, serving the food. And the uh, civil rights attorney, uh, Richard Kunzler, um, uh from famous back in the 60s and 70s, is in William, the prison William with them. William Kunzler. Yeah. Well, William Kunzler, yeah. I'm sorry. William Kunzler. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. William Kunzler. Is, is in the prison with these guys while they're having this oh. dinner. And one of the guys in the, in the picture, um, who um, was a guy named Dickie Gomes, had a pet goat <laughs> that he kept in the prison. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. And this, you know, that's where these, you know, Patriarch controlled Rhode Island, and he controlled New England, and he was very influential with the New York mob. There was a tight connection between Raymond and, and uh, the, the families in New York. But he also, as, as um, you know, he also owned extensive real estate and an interest in hotels, casinos all throughout the country. I mean, he was not just some tough guy yeah. who happened to run a, you know, New England. I mean, this guy was a was was he was respected all over the country and he was known all over the country. So. It is incredible to me that whole story. It made me think back of the the Goodfellas thing where they were making the spaghetti just a certain way in just, prison. You know, just like that. Just that, like that. Yeah, and, I, and what's amazing about that? First of all, do they do that because the prisons themselves are kind of afraid of these guys? So it's like, all right, let them stay over here. We'll let them do what they want. We'll, it was a kind of like an agreed thing where you stay there. We'll let you do what we want, and in return for that, you won't knock us off. So, you know, one thing that you're talking about, Jerry, like he was my long lost friend. He, 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 I became, he, he was, he was a difficult character not to like. Convicted of one murder and, and charged with five others, probably responsible for more along the lines of 15 or 20. Um, but he was very charming, very entertaining. Um, he, we were doing a book signing together and my, my daughter was there. And she tells me after, she said, you know, a very strange conversation. And strange conversation, you know, it doesn't it to me. So she's not naive. Yeah. But he says, she's, Jerry and Jerry says, well, the first time I was in prison for murder, she's like, well, how many times are <laughs> you in prison for murder? And he says, he, so he calls him, he goes, well, six, but I was only convicted once. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
But but Jerry said when they were when he did thirty three years in the, in the ACI for the best Asian conviction, and and when he was in prison, stories about you know they get some prison guy that decided he was going to be a hot ass, and Jerry says you know we wouldn't threaten them, we wouldn't you know we wouldn't go after him or attack him or beat him up or do anything. What they would do is he'd come into work one day, his home phone number and his mother's home phone number would be written on the prison wall. You didn't have to do anything after that. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. You mean you got you got you got your point across real quick. So, you know that just that's that just kind of illustrates how they're ruthless, but they're not stupid. You know? Yeah. They know if they beat the god up, that's going to bring heat on them. If they threaten them, that's going to bring heat on them. If the guy comes to work someday and nobody knows who wrote his mother's phone number on the wall, <laughs> they accomplish their goal. and that, that, that won't make your day. There's no question. You know, talking about no. these guys, is it part of it is that the, you think, I don't want to get too much into psycho babble, but is it because they have so much confidence and so forth that people just are kind of drawn to them because they just don't seem to be afraid of anything? I think a lot of it is, you know, there's, there's some, I mean, Jerry's a tough guy. You know, no doubt about it, he was a tough guy. But, you know, no one is ever the toughest guy in the world. There's somebody else that's tougher. And, you know, a gun is a great equalizer. You know, if you're the toughest guy in the world, but you're 25 feet away and I have a 9 millimeter, I'm going to win. You know, but yeah, they don't, They you know, they, they don't. A lot of it is, quite frankly, it's just pure, unadulterated luck. Yeah. You know, if I if I drove down the window, I drove down the street and decided to take a couple of shots at somebody on the street, you know, there'd be 400 witnesses, you know, that would identify my car and identify me. Because Jerry drove down the street on that, you know, he could drive down at noontime through Federal Hill. And, you know, at that one particular moment, no one would have been around. And he would, it's just luck <laughs> with some of these things that happen. It's just the way it is with these guys. You it's know? unreal. Well, I, I know, like, let's talk a little about Louie for a second, because Louie was quite the ladies' man, from what I understand. I mean, th this guy had, <laughs> and he well, liked the ladies. Is that right? <laughs> well, a lot of this is by his own account. Uh, but, um, you know, he did have adventures in Rome where he'd go to get jewelry from certain connections and cars, and he became a Lamborghini dealer and he did uh write about his three days of uh various pleasure with uh several or more uh young women who somehow were attracted to him and they they did they did spill out a red wine on the sheets according to Louis. <laughs> so that was some of the adventures he wrote about in more graphic detail. But uh, back to prison, uh, Louis said he spent two of the best years of his life in uh, Fort Dix, the federal prison uh, in New Jersey, right? Used to be a, a, a military base. Uh, you know, the, the phrase you thought it was more, which is, you know, part of the title, mm -hmm. identifies a mobster as being from the Providence office. And the Providence office is a reference to the patriarchal crime family. And so if you if you say you thought it was more, well, that's how Louis was was greeted when he went to Fort Dix by a a, a former uh, special forces uh, sergeant, army sergeant. He says, "Everyone calls me the Sarge. You thought it was more. That's, 
that's how he walked into Fort Dix. So he got a nice room right away. And after a while, he got to a bigger suite of rooms in Fort Dix with all the guys from the uh, Pizza Connection heroin trial, which was like the major case at that time uh, in New York. And uh, I, I guess it was New York and Sicily. Where they, right. They used the uh, pizza parlors to sell heroin, and all the guys were there. So... So you, you don't want to be in prison, right? You don't want to be in prison. But if you have to go, no. you're going to go better than anybody else goes, it seems like. I mean, it's not you're not going to some... Uh, well, at the time, you know, they uh, they controlled a lot. And, and Raymond actually did some time in Atlanta where his roommate was a guy, Billy the Wild Guy Grasso, who for a while was the number two guy in, in New England until he got... Uh, executed uh, by another guy. Uh, Frank Salemi. Gaetano Milano is the guy who killed uh, Billy the Wild Guy right. Grasso. Yeah. Yep. Frank Salemi is another big name that uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know about. Yeah, like, he, like, he was like Wild He was like Wild Bill. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Wild Bill was not a nice guy. <laughs> no, I mean, was there a no. lot of shit? people for no reason. No, was there a lot of shanking of people? You know, was that going on in the prisons, or was there not much of it? I mean, it, it still was where you know there was certain expectations depending on where you were in the in the whole organization, right? It, you know, you, you even though you're in prison, you're still uh, part of the team there. Sure. Well, prison life is a lot different now than what it was back then in the sixties and seventies. I mean, you know, I, we were having a discussion one time. Um, another. Another guy I wrote a book with is a guy, a guy named uh, Brendan Doherty, who was a former superintendent of the state police and was very much involved in their intelligence unit, the organized crime unit. Um, we happened to have, we happened, I happened to have been at a book signing and, uh, with, with Jerry and Brendan. One of the things Brendan said to Jerry, the guys that are going into prison today, you know, the gang members and, you know, the, you know these guys don't, they don't have, they're not afraid of organized crime. Yeah. They're not afraid of those guys, you know, so. You know, shanking somebody. No, but Jerry did get stabbed in prison. He did get stabbed by a guy. Um, depending on what theory you believe, uh, the guy was the son-in-law of a guy who Jerry had allegedly killed. He was never charged with the murder, but they suspected he was involved in the homicide. And this guy stabbed Jerry um, with a uh, it cut a section out of the license plate and, uh, and stabbed Jerry in the, in the neck. The Ita- do the Italians still run things, or is that uh, those days gone? I mean, that go back to the fifties and sixties, or are they still primarily the the top dogs when you talk about organized crime? Yeah, no, it's still it's still a, it's still an Italian mafia, and you know, still you still have to um, you know you still have to be full blooded Italian in order to become a member. the The number of guys you call it being on the books, the number of guys on the books has changed dramatically. And at the peak of the Petriaca era. You know, there might have been 200 guys somewhere on the books. Um, now, if there's, you know, 20 or 30, um, you know, the whole, their whole things that they've gotten involved with have, have changed. You know, they've gotten, they're more into, you know, there's still some labor, um, you know, labor union um, activity. But RICO, the RICO uh, statutes, when they started to apply those in the 60s, really was a death knell for, for the wide. We'd call a guy like Brian and say, hey, go get rid of Broadmeadow. 
and Jerry would say, okay, and he'd go do it. And if he got caught, you know, everybody might believe because there was no, there was no statute that allowed them to do it. But Rico statutes really, you know, um, was a, was the death knell for those guys because now, you know, these guys could be tied into, you know, if they showed five conversations or five calls between Patriarca and, uh, you know, Maurice Prolern or somebody, now they could, now they could tie him in and, you know, and indict him and, and put him away for a long time. You know, these guys did, you know, they might have, they might have had an easier time in prison than most, but it was still prison. Yeah. And, you know, they did not want to be there. Fascinating stuff. I want to talk to you about one more thing, and we're going to talk about Las Vegas, and then we'll tell everybody how they can get a hold of this great book about Louis the Coin. But first, sure. you mentioned the word respect, and and I hear that all the time whenever you talk. Uh, uh, you know, I have an Italian name. I'm 100% Italian, but I didn't know anybody in the mafia. We were from the northern part of the of the country, and I just didn't know anybody. Sure. But for, as friends I had that had some connection, you'd always hear them talk about respect, and it, it was like a big thing. Was that something that, uh, you know, uh, like you say, don't want to say anything when somebody might be alive, uh, just all these rules of respect? It's part of that whole family thing, which I guess why people even join this, aside from the great money and the power. There's also that whole idea of you're, you're respected and you're given a certain amount of credit. Did you find that in dealing with these people, that that, that was a big thing among among each other? Oh, sure. It was nothing, you know, there was a... Nothing. Uh, there was another book that I worked on with a, with a kid named. Uh, he was a, he was a member of Bobo Marquis's crew, and, and he talked about how there was nothing cooler in the world than being with these guys because you walked into clubs, you know, women were falling all over you. Nobody's charging you for drinks. Mm-hmm. Sure, that played a big part of it. I mean, Jerry would talk about how he he considered Patriarca to be like a second father to him because it gave him sort of a sense of family. Wow. A lot of those guys are like that, you know. I mean, yeah. most of the guys, you know, would have a hard time spelling the word "the." They were not geniuses. They were they were just brutal. They were, if they said, "Go break that," you know, "Go break that six-year-old," you know, "Go go break that sixteen-year-old kid's legs." Wouldn't say, "Okay, you know, why do I have to do this?" No, I don't want to. They just go do nothing twice about it. So there was a certain psychopathology to some of these guys killing somebody just because somebody else told you to in their mind it gave them respect but then it wasn't you know the person on the street who would you know see patriarcha and say you know you know hello mr patriarcha it wasn't respect it was fear you know yeah of what might happen you know right right it, 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 yeah, one person's respect is another one's fear you're right andy i wanted to ask you one thing about uh about louie of course, people ask sometimes, well, why are you so interested in it? And quite frankly, in the side that I love what you guys research and write about and so forth, I find it fascinating. Also, there is definitely a Las Vegas connection. And even guys from Rhode Island and so forth, they made an impact. Louie made an impact on Las Vegas. And from what I understand, Las Vegas, of all the crime people, the cops and the FBI and so forth, they never like to admit that he used to, you know, well, he, he he's, get, uh... Here's the way one guy put it. An investigator told me, we knew that he hit Las Vegas hard, but since many of the directors of security there were former FBI agents, they denied it. The problem did not exist. It never happens. Uh, But the person who told me that said Vegas had been hit just a few months before 
Louis hit there. He hit not just Las Vegas, but all over uh, Nevada. He had like crates of tokens shipped to Las Vegas. So there's there's postal records and other records. Did he hit Reno but, and Tahoe as well then? Yeah, the, the whole area, the whole state. Wow. <laughs> he, you know, he he had a theory that he would only hit a place for the way he put it, like a hundred thousand, something they wouldn't miss, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> but I guess in Atlantic City, he might have gotten greedy because he he just played the hundred dollar tokens for a while, and there that's where they have cameras, right? And and um, he would always go with the same woman, even though he would change, you know, his costume or get up or disguise. Supposedly, he would even wear dresses sometimes, you know, dress up as a woman wow. at casinos. He he looked at it for a while, and then he got greedy, I guess, because he used to look at it like an ATM. Just go out, take something out. There's plenty more later. <laughs> yeah, well, you're playing, you're playing for free, so anything you win is... Is profit, yeah. But then, the casinos said, "Why do we have this surplus in tokens? They're not rabbits, right?" Right. right. So then they started monitoring. When they knew that, when they get a surplus, they knew he was around. And then they uh, watched the hundred dollar machines in Atlantic City, and that's how they got him. You guys are fascinating. We're going to have you on again real soon because uh, I tell you, I could listen to you all day. It's first of all, Joe Broadmeadow. You want to look him up because he's got some great books. And the story about uh, Jerry uh, Tinglehast is really interesting. Uh, all his stuff is interesting. Check him out. You can go to Amazon, look him up, and so forth, and see what all his books are available. And Andy as well. And let's get you a book you got to have right now. Andy's one of the co-authors. It's You Thought It Was More, Adventures of the World's Greatest Counterfeiter, Louis the Coin. And... Uh, you know, if you know Andy, he's he's a great uh, storyteller. You know, he's been teaching news and investigative reporting at the University of New Haven. And this book is just fantastic. You can get it. Let's see here. In fact, I have right here. You can go to their website, louisthecoinbook.com, and you can pre-order now for delivery in June. Our website is louisthecoin.com, louisthecoinbook.com. I said it wrong, louisthecoinbook.com. You can also available. Uh, it's also available for pre-order now from Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and Walmart, among many other outlets. Andy, Joe, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you. It's a good time. Thank you, Steve. Please follow Vegas Never Sleeps on all social media platforms, including X, Facebook, and Instagram. And thank you for listening today. This is Stephen Maggi reminding you: Vegas never sleeps. Vegas, here we go. If you're living with diabetes and using insulin, you know the pain of pricking your fingers over and over again. 
Ouch! Well, by wearing a small remote device called a continuous glucose monitor, or CGM, you can reduce the pain of pricking your fingers. If you administer insulin three or more times per day or use an insulin pump, call now and learn how a CGM can help you. Painless. No more pricking my finger. No finger pricks. Convenience. They delivered it free and they took care of all the paperwork. You can reduce pain right away. Plus, it's accurate, easy to use, and helps you spend more time in range. And if you have insurance, you can get a new CGM at little or no out-of-pocket cost. Call now and get free shipping of your new CGM. Plus, we'll bill your insurance for you. 800-483-7217. Holy gentle giants dog food, Batman. I'm Burt Ward, Robin from the Batman TV series. I was the caped crusader, and now I'm the canine crusader. After rescuing and feeding 15,500 dogs for 23 years, my wife and I created a natural, low-fat, heart-healthy, made-in-America dog food and special feeding and care program designed to help all dogs live amazingly longer, healthier, happier lives. Our dogs are living as long as 27 healthy, active years. Yours can too. That's twice their normal lifespan and triple for some breeds. Would you like your dog to live as long as 27 years and still be active and healthy? Gentle Giants Dog Food is complete nutrition for all dogs and puppies, all ages and sizes, and is different from other dog foods without the greasy coating and high fat content that can shorten your dog's life. Try our Gentle Giants life-enhancing dog food for the longer, healthier, happier life of your dog. Do you have a car sitting around you want to get rid of? Then here's a great idea. Donate your car and help veterans and their families. Yes, one fast call to the Veteran Car Donation Program and we'll come and remove your car for free. Fast, free towing and 24-hour response. You can donate most cars, trucks or SUVs in most conditions. The proceeds raised goes to help active military, veterans and their families. And you get a tax deduction. All you need to do is make this free call. Get rid of that old car and help the vets. We make it easy. Make this free call now and book your fast and easy pickup. Call the Veteran Donation Program now. Donate your car and help veterans and their families. Operators are standing by. Here's the number. 800-932-1176. That's 800-932-1176. I'm Bobby Brooks Wilson, and you're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi.